Welcome to another installment of the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Bember. I hope you're continuing to keep safe as the world continues to try and bring the global pandemic under control. The next conversation in our World After COVID-19 series is with Jean-Francois Manzoni. Manzoni is president of the International Institute for Management Development based in Switzerland, and the conversation with GBSN's Dan Leclerc and Sumitra Dutta was conducted 10 weeks after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Many things may have changed since then, but Manzoni's analysis of trust in governments, innovation in executive education, and leading in a crisis is still of great value. Here's GBSN's CEO, Dan Leclerc, picking up the conversation. When you think about what we're experiencing right now with coronavirus, when you think about 2020, do you think this is a global turning point for the world, for business, higher education? It's always hard to say because I think we've had several turning points before where we've said, oh man, that's a turning point and there's no going back. The reality is the world does forget and, and, and reproduces some of the same mistakes. I mean, this is not the first, you know, pandemic problem we have, right? This, this um, it just so happens to be a bit worse, but you know, we've had that before. Um, so I don't know, I don't know for sure that it will be a turning point and, and somehow we'll, we'll get the lesson. Um, but I, I do hope so. I hope that the world will indeed use this as, I think the wake up call that it is in many ways. Um, and I think it's a wake up call on a number of fronts. One of them is, um, I think we may have pushed globalization too far and we may have pushed the pursuit of competitive advantage too far. Uh, meaning that we have built a world where we assume that there's peace and there's free movement of people and goods. Uh, and, and, and as soon as there's not free movement of people and goods, then we have problems. So, you know, you're, you're making uh, a bunch of active ingredients in China. Those active ingredients are supposed to go to all over the world to enable other organizations to create various products and services. Well, if the active ingredients ain't coming out of China, we all have a problem. Right. So, so I think that's one. Two, um, and, and, so I, and I hope that the world will take that lesson. Um, two, um, I think that this is also starting, starting to force us to confront some questions that have been with us for a while, but we haven't been willing to confront. Uh, one of those questions is, on average, people consume, I think the statistic last time I saw it was half of their lifetime healthcare costs in the final year of life. Uh, how long do we want to continue doing this? Um, how long do we want to continue investing disproportionate amount of resources on people with pathologies that are not going anywhere? And here I'm not just referring to COVID-19. COVID-19 generally, I mean, you either, you know, after two weeks, they're either turning left or they're turning right. Um, but, but we have a healthcare system that is designed for a certain type 
of, of, of activities and pathologies and not others. So I think, I hope that this will lead us to ask ourselves, what is our healthcare system designed for? What is it supposed to pay for? Um, three, I, I think that the, this crisis, and, and three will be my last point. Uh, three, I, I, I think that this crisis is also on the positive side, helping us to realize that we can actually do a bunch of things without being face to face. Um, and, and that I think is very healthy and, and good. Uh, now, I continue to think, and certainly at IMD, we continue to think that there is a great value to having people being co-located and working simultaneously and in, and in physical proximity on issues. Uh, and, and, and we think that this, again, there will continue to be value to that, but we're also realizing over the last month that some aspects of the value that's being created when people are working on, on issues together, some aspects can genuinely be uh, reproduced now online, um, you know, at, 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 at very limited cost. Well, so so I, I really hope that the world will build on these three insights and three lessons. Uh, will we? I don't know. So Jean-Francois, uh, I would love to push on the first point a little bit more in depth. So you raised the question, have we taken globalization too far? Um, what do you see happening in the way businesses operate? And our businesses are basically operated on the global principle for too long with the global supply chains and so on. How do you see all of that evolving and changing? Again, I think we, should, we, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So, you know, you have people saying, oh, you know, this shows that globalization was bad. No, globalization has raised has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, the system in which, you know, the, the capitalist system combined with a globalized approach has resulted in, if you look over the last hundred years, massive increase in life expectancy, massive increase in the quality of life. I mean, there's just no doubt that the economic system that we have developed over the last decades has had massive positive impact on the world. There is also no doubt that these positive impacts have come at a price on a number of dimensions. And one of those dimensions clearly is ecological, right? So we just cannot continue to operate the way we have been operating and, and escape what is increasingly obvious uh, in terms of negative ecological um, externalities. So, so that's, I think, one aspect. That's not the COVID-19 lesson. I think that's just a lesson that some of us over the last few years have been, have been increasingly incapable to avoid. Voilà. So I think for a while you go like, yeah, yeah, but it's okay, yeah, but it's okay. And now you start to have a, an accumulation of evidence uh, which is not conclusive, but it's starting to be darn convincing. What the COVID-19 shows is, is again that, that you know, we have these incredibly atomized or fragmented supply chain and somehow you know, good things happen and they come together. Uh, well, uh, you know, somehow good things happen and they come together as long as we have free movement of goods and people, 
um, which assumes, again, A, peace, and B, uh, no pandemic of any kind, no major problem of any kind. Uh, and, and so I think we have underestimated the risks that were associated with the system. So the system worked fine uh, as long as the conditions necessary for that world to function, as long as these conditions were present. And then when those conditions are no longer present, what you realize is this system is not very resilient, right? Because this system has been optimized for certain conditions. If the conditions are not present, the system breaks down. So I think that, again, we've always known that there is a trade-off between effectiveness, efficiency, and resilience, right? So I think we had a system that was like super efficient, uh, but not very resilient. So, you know, the Swiss, um, they have an agriculture. You know, in Switzerland, we have farmers and, and we do stuff here. And, you know, the world looks at this and goes like, I mean, you know, you shouldn't have farmers in Switzerland, right? I mean, you can have farmers elsewhere, right? We, we don't even have like valleys. We have like, it's mountains here. You know what? The Swiss are saying, that's all fine and good. It may not be super efficient, but you know, if we can't buy food from anybody else, at least we have our own. Voilà. So, so I think, again, some countries um, in some areas uh, have always insisted on having some form of um, autonomy and, um, and independence. Uh, I think a lot of other countries did not. Um, corporations have been part of this process where, again, we have fragmented um, the manufacturing process and the supply chains, and, and we have assumed perfect movement. Well, we just had one more reason why sometimes you can have perfect movement. How does that play out with government? I said this to my wife and my kids as soon as this started. I said, you know, this is going to be hard. And it's going to be hard because all the management teams I know, and I think it's even truer for governments, we were all maxed out already. I mean, you know, look, I, I manage a small independent school. You know, it's not General Electric, right? Man, I was maxed out. You know, in January, I'm like, I'm maxed out. I, I can manage what we do now, but don't add too much on top of it. And now suddenly, kaboom, you have this thing coming. And so what I've noticed in terms of my own management team is that this has accelerated the realization where that you have ill-aligned, that you have you know, fault lines within your team. Uh, and two, it also reveals the character and the potential of people. Some of them thrive and stand up and others wither and... Uh, just stick around. They don't go away, they just stick around. So you, you take this at, at the level of a, of a government, right, which is a lot more complex, uh, and I think that's what you got. There is a video that right now is circulating. I could send it to you. Maybe, maybe Sumishra still remembers a few words of French. Those are public officials from France between January and February and early March explaining why this ain't going to be an issue, there's going to be no contamination, we're going to be fine, we're super ready. Uh, voilà. so, so I think that, unfortunately, 
the way this crisis is being managed, certainly by national governments, is unfortunately going to further contribute to the lack of confidence that citizens have in their governments in most countries. So I think that's unfortunate because I profoundly believe that there cannot be progress without delayed gratification, the acceptance of delayed gratification. I mean, if you think about it, any, any form of progress requires people to accept delayed gratification. But people will not accept delayed gratification if they, if they have no trust in their elite. That is one of the secrets of Singapore's success. The Singaporeans trust their government and their elite. Less than 30 years ago, but enormously more than in other countries. So right now, the government, certainly in Europe, ex with the possible exception of Germany, uh, are, are not looking good. Um, so that's, that's, no, I think it's making governments look like fools. It makes them look unready uh, and it will nurture the confidence crisis, which I think is quite unfortunate because it leads people then to vote for individuals who sound self-assured and have no clue. In other words, for populist uh, parties, and that's not helpful. So Jean-Francois, in, in terms of the, you know, for, for tackling a global pandemic like this, you need global coordination. And there's already criticism of how, you know, the US and China haven't coordinated and European commissions, you know, its own role has been you know, questioned in terms of how effective it has been in coordinating inside Europe. I mean, how do you see all this evolving? Because the global coordination is uh, going to, you know, further disintegrate or will there be a pressure on, on, on some kind of a greater success in doing it? Okay, so uh, let me preface this by saying that neither God nor the major governments of the world whisper in my ear at night. Huh? So, so, uh, so I, I, I don't know how this will evolve. It seems to me that one of the positive outcomes I seem to detect over the last few weeks is that the scientists are cooperating more. And again, I am not in every lab and I'm not reading every paper, but the impression I have is that the scientists basically have said, you know, stop the governments. Uh, we're just going to talk and we're just going to collaborate with one another because otherwise this is not going to go fast enough. Um, so, so that I think is a positive. Across governments, these constructions, Europe, right, is, is a construction of heterogeneous uh, entities. Now, why would it, so, so in, 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 a, in, a, in a setting where you have heterogeneous entities, by the way, some of whom have hated one another for hundreds of years, and let's be clear, um, why do they cooperate? Well, they cooperate if, A, they develop a certain sense of shared destiny. Somehow, we mean something together, right? So there's a sense of shared destiny. And B, there is a sufficient amount of confidence in the institutions that are uh, created by this heterogeneous group. I don't know that there is a massive sense of shared destiny among European countries right now, uh, nor do I have the impression that there is an enormous amount of confidence on the part of the population in the institutions. And of course, Brexit, is an example of that. 
let's be clear. I, 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 if there was a Brexit-like vote, well, before COVID-19, now, today, I don't know. But, you know, in the middle of last year, if there's a vote in all European countries on we stay or we go, I got to tell you, huh, the Brits are not the only ones to go. Well, uh, then, then you got the U.S. Look, uh, again, I, I don't want to say anything insulting or anything, but you know, the U.S. right now have a government that is puzzling the whole world. You know, um, now thanks, you know, thank God there are checks and balances and stuff. But so, so, how do you expect cooperation to come out of this? Right? You have blogs that are heterogeneous to start with, and then you've got some of the blogs that are pursuing you know, political agendas with points of view on the world which, which are bewildering. I mean, I, I don't know how to get a U.S. government to cooperate when you've got a president that systematically denies reality. You know, so, so, again, cooperation indeed would lead to a superior outcome. So the impression I have is that the cooperation will come from scientists, maybe also from companies that we will have to see. Um, for example, I am amazed at how long it is taking various countries to do clinical tests of possible uh, solutions. Right? So, so like two months ago or six weeks ago, there's a French guy uh, who said, ah, we have this molecule that treats malaria, boom, let's use it. So he does a test, you know, like uh, 42, you know, 27 people, whatever, over 10 days, and he says it works. And, and the world legitimately says, well, you know, wait a minute, let's do a real test. And, and I'm like, okay, so let's set this up, right? I mean, we have like a number of hospitals all over the world. Let's set this up. And within countries, they're seeming, they, seem, they seem to find it difficult. They're across countries, like forget it. Apparently, the Japanese also have a drug that was used to fight Ebola. Uh, and apparently was, was, was quite effective in the case of Ebola and potentially could be quite effective in the case of COVID-19. Um, the Chinese were already making a generic version of this weeks ago. Right? Because they say, we tried it and it worked. Uh, yeah, I think we haven't had the cooperation we should have had. Why? Uh, again, as I said, I find governments not particularly at their best. Um, I think people were swamped, overwhelmed. Again, crises don't necessarily bring the best out of people. Huh? Let's be clear, right? Crisis brings the best out of people who are ready and, and they're ready because they prepared. I think the world did not prepare for this. So can I ask a follow-on question? Uh, you know, we have been talking about the rise of Asia and particularly the rise of China for quite some time. Do you think this is going to accelerate as a result of what is happening? Yes. Yes. So a week ago, I sent, to, I sent to my three sons uh, a long article, and God knows I had other things to do that morning, but I took an hour and a half to write them a long thing saying, 
it is now clear to me. I had this feeling after 9-11. I remember on the 12th of September, 2001, I took some of my kids to school. And I said to them, they were quite young at the time, I said to them, your world just changed last night. You know, in my world, there were poor and disenfranchised people. They just stayed poor and disenfranchised and didn't bother the rest of us. In your world, the poor and the disenfranchised, now they're saying, we're going to come and we're going to mess you up. And, and, I, and I remember being very clear that that day, that that day the world had changed. Not just because of the death, not just because of the horror, but because of what this meant for the world. And a week ago, I had exactly the same aha moment. I looked and I said, you know, uh, yes, I, I think that the... I think that China is going to come out of this stronger. Um, and, and I think that uh, Asia will come out of this stronger, yes. And, and fortunately, uh, it's not entirely clear that Europe will come out of this uh, super stronger. But uh, I said fortunately because I kind of live in Europe. IMD is not the typical business school. Uh, it's very heavily weighted towards uh, executive education, of course. Um, but I've gone on record in the past as saying, as saying that the future of business education is indeed um, much more focused on executive non-degree education moving forward. But if you could talk a little bit about, huh? I'm sorry? Who said that? I said that. <laughs> I, I do believe it. I, I think um, yeah, much of the signals that we're getting about the future of business education points in that direction. Maybe if you could comment about that, about how you see the future evolving uh, between non-degree executive education and degree education as a consequence of this. But then more generally, what do you see as the uh, potential implications for business education beyond 2020. And maybe if you can also add the element of technology, how technology is going to change the way perhaps executive education might be developed in the future. At IMD, we are currently about 15% degree programs, 85% non-degree. Uh, is this an optimal mix? Well, it depends for what, and it depends in what period of time. Uh, in period of very high academic, uh, academic, sorry, economic expansion, you know, the 85% is, is quite okay. Um, but uh, in a time where you cannot travel, forget across countries, even within countries, and you can have more than five people in a room, when 90% of your revenue depends on somebody moving to meet somebody else, because in our degree programs, we have an executive MBA, our executive MBA, they come from abroad. So for us, 90% of our revenue requires us to travel to them, them to travel to us, or both of us to travel to a third place. When you can travel and you can congregate, this is not super great. Okay, so, so clearly, um, again, the disadvantage of non-degree programs or non-degree activities is that they tend to be a lot more volatile uh, than degree program activities. So when you say the future of business education is 
is non-degree, I guess the answer is it depends for whom. If you look at it from an industry point of view or from a world point of view, that's probably true. If only because people are living longer, the world is changing faster. And so clearly whatever education we could give them when they were 18 to 22 or when they were 26 to 32, clearly ain't gonna last a lifetime, right? So, so in that sense, statistically, you've gotta be right, Dan, that you know, in an aggregate sort of way, non-degree activities will end up being more important than degree activities. When you start looking at it from an institutional point of view, living with the uncertainty of non-degree is not easy and is not for the faint of heart. Uh, right, so, so, so that's on the starting point. Uh, how how is, is, is this gonna change? Look, I, I think that on the, on the degree program side, there are clearly some parts of the world where degree programs are still rising. Um, uh, and I think that, again, God has not whispered in my ear, huh? but, but if you ask my, my, my humble prediction on this, I think we're going to see a sort of a bimodal distribution where on one side, you're going to have the cheap, um, let me rephrase this. We're going to have the kind of inexpensive, uh, uh, high availability, high flexibility sort of programs. Uh, and then on the other side, we will have the high touch, uh, high cost, high brand sort of program. So I think the schools with very powerful brands will remain. Uh, the folks who are able to propose good education, uh, essentially largely online, uh, wherever you want, from wherever you want, and so on, at relatively cheap price will survive. I think the middle will really struggle. So that's, I think, on the degree side. I think there will be a flight to quality and brand, uh, and then there will be the rest. Um, if you can't create value in a, in a sort of observable sort of way, then I'm going to take the cheap option. Um, I think the other thing that we're also going to see is we're going to see stackable credentials. Uh, and, and so again, I think we'll see more EMBAs that get um, uh, obtained by taking two courses, uh, two online courses at, at Wharton, one online course at Cornell, uh, two online courses uh, at IMD, and then maybe uh, two months uh, or one month bank. So I think we'll see more stackable credentials. Uh, so, so that's on the degree side. On the non-degree side, clearly what we're gonna see is a stronger use of technology. I mean, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. And, and I think for two reasons. One, a reason of efficiency, sorry, uh, meaning that people don't want to travel. Also, I think we're going to get increasing uh, environmental pressures on the, uh, on the CO2 footprint, blah, blah, blah. So, so, so it's just like, it's, it's just easier for people to do things at a distance, but also for effectiveness reasons. So, um, we now know that neurons that fire together wire together. What this means is that if we want sustainable learning, and if you want people to translate their learning into action, somehow the neurons need to fire together more often. Uh, when they come to us for a week or two, the neurons just don't fire together long enough and often enough. So we know that if we want more sustainable impact, we need to have longer, we need to have 
more frequent exposure over longer periods of time, except they're not going to come to us for longer periods of time. So we're going to have to come to them. And that's where the technology will help us. The second reason, the second area where technology will help us, we're not there yet. We at IMD have started discussing it, but we're not there. And I don't know many people who are. In a lecture or in class, I have a main message, right? And then people ask questions and, and I do various kinds of loops, you know, uh, to answer these questions. And, and these questions are introducing some customization of the learning process, right? But in a classroom setting, that customization is highly imperfect because you know, when Dan asks me a question that is absolutely fascinating to him, Sumitra is thinking, oh, I already know this. And the other way around, right? Now, to the extent that we can do intelligently designed, pre-prepared educational packages, we could design these pre-prepared packages in ways that enable great customization. And that very few people talk about. We all talk about the efficiency aspect, right? But if you think about the effectiveness aspect through not only the repetition and the ability to rewatch and the ability to redo over a long period of time, but also the fact that it can be customized. So let me take an example. Uh, you know, I discuss difficult relationships, handling difficult relationships. Okay, so we get to a point and, and then, you know, we give them a quiz and, and, and we say, okay, look, now there is an interesting nuance here, which is uh, uh, difficult relationships uh, with people who come from different culture with high power distance. Are you interested in this? If yes, click, if not, move on. You understand? So, so there is a possibility for us to think intelligently about this, this material in ways that will enable customization. And now you have increased effectiveness and increased efficiency. And, and, and that will be a very powerful combination. Now, as I said before, we continue to believe that there will be benefits to people being together. Just last week, I was watching a video on brain waves. So you know, the, the, the human brain generates brain waves and, and those brain waves can be captured can be measured and what we find is that when individuals are engaged in tasks that require coordination you start observing synchronization of these brain waves what you also observe is that in some activities when there is synchronization there's also a greater enjoyment so again as i'm as i'm reading this my hypothesis is that when we have a group of people together we, we have at certain moments, not only emotional convergence, but also I think, I suspect, just brainwave convergence. We also, again, can influence one another in, in ways that are harder to do, at least today, um, at a distance. So we continue to believe that there will be continued power and value creation by having people together. Uh, but clearly, we also believe that technology not only will but must intervene more and more in our world because it is leading to greater effectiveness and greater efficiency. Jean-François, one question about society and people. 
you know, we heard of all these stories of people in Italy and Spain coming together, you know, singing, drinking, doing other kinds of activities, you know, even though they are yes. sort of stuck at home. Uh, do you think uh, this COVID, uh, COVID crisis is going to sort of get us to refocus on our family, on hum humanity, on human values, or this is going to create an opposite reaction? You're already, you know, in China, your stories of divorce rates increasing, you know, and so on and so forth. I'm just curious, what's your sense of the impact on the individual and on human values and society? But those two possibilities are not mutually incompatible. I think that what you are observing because of the COVID crisis is A, you are observing an increase in domestic violence in many countries. Uh, and B, you will observe a greater rate of divorces. Just because, you know, th there's this wonderful video, you must have seen it, right? Where, where the, the voice says, you have a choice, right? You, you, a, you can be with your family and the guy goes, B. Um, I watch it like three times a day and I continue to laugh it. Um, so I think that this is tough on families. By the way, I think it is disproportionately tough on poor families. So I think that what we're asking people to do from a confinement point of view is disproportionately hard for poor families. Then, uh, and I think this is going to lead to, again, as you said, violence and domestic violence and divorces. Um, then does it lead us to refocus on the, on the essentials? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I know that at IMD it has. So on a micro scale, on a micro scale, it is possible to use, the, and I think we have so far, it is possible to use this crisis as a rallying cry. Right? So, so uh, I think touch wood, that so far we've done a decent job managing this crisis internally. And so far we've done, a, I think, a decent job on one side, not disguising the criticality and the risks, the criticality of the crisis and the risks associated with it, while at the same time maintaining a sense of confidence and calm that if everybody does their job, we're going to be better off than if we start. Um, so I said something in an, in an article in French, it became the title of this article, and now it's becoming like a cult phrase within IMD. And that phrase is at IMD, we don't get worried, we get busy. Uh, so I think for us, it has tightened the community. Uh, in a, in a, you know, it, it, but because it has reinforced this sense of shared destiny and because it has enabled us to create um, pockets within IMD, pockets of, of collegiality and support. I don't know that at the scale of France or, or Europe, I don't know that I see a lot of this uh, solidarity. Um, so I... I, I so I don't know, you may be right. Maybe it will help human beings to refocus on the essentials. I, I don't know. I, I think that one of the things that it's already doing is it's weakening people's confidence in their leaders. Um, I don't think that that's very good for uh, you know, people 
So no, I, I don't see an enormous number of positive consequences as of today at a macro scale, frankly. At a micro scale, at our level, yes. Today, again, in a strange sort of way, IMD is a stronger, more aligned, more cohesive, more confident institution than we were three months ago, in a strange sort of way. Well, this is a, a perfect time, I think, based on your, uh, where you were going with the last response. Uh, as a leadership professor, can you offer two to three of what you would consider to be the, the uh, top leadership lessons to carry forward from this crisis? Um, so I can share two or three insights. Yes, I don't know whether they're like universal lessons for the rest of the world, but two or three insights, yes. Um, one, I think we identified very early on that we needed to come across as a very aligned and very unified management team. Uh, and so very quickly, I, start, I stopped sending emails from my mailbox and we created an exco executive committee mailbox. The first thing I would say is watch the team, watch the top team and make sure that the top team really works intelligently and cohesively. Um, particularly important in this particular time because again, people are gonna be quite scared uh, and so they really need this sense of secure base. They need to feel no, you guys live in the U.S. If you follow American football, it's like Bill Belichick, right? Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, says, do your job, right? Forget about everything else. Just focus. You know, we designed the goddamn play. Just execute the goddamn play. Now, it's a little bit difficult in a, you know, in an in a academic institution to say to people, don't preoccupy yourself with complex issues. Just do your job and let me do the thinking. So you don't say that. But what you do is you come across as a cohesive and, again, uh, intelligent and insightful management team, and that calms the troops. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is communication is super, super, super important. And so you need to increase communication at all levels. Um, what we find is that in a situation like now, we find that managers essentially talk to their staff pretty much every day. So, so, so people need to be in touch. Uh, well, we've conducted community sessions like once a week. Now we're moving to once every two weeks. So, so again, the importance of communication is very high. Um, the third one I would say is, so I'll have four. Uh, first one is, is, is the team. The second one is the importance of frequent and quality communication. Um, the third one is from day one, we said we have two objectives. We said actually we have three. One is we obviously want to help you and your families to stay healthy. And we want to contribute to the world's effort to flatten the curve. So one, we said there's the health. Two, we said we want IMD to survive, but beyond surviving, we want IMD to come out of this stronger and with forward momentum. And so you've got to do two things as a leadership team during these crises. One, with one eye, you've got to look at the super tactical. Do we have the cash 
how many weeks of cash do we have, da 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 da, da. So it's like super tactical. Which programs do we cancel? What do we switch online? But you also have to have another eye on, and where do we invest? Right? So immediately my board started saying, you got to cut this, cut this, cut that. And I said, no, we're not going to, we're going to cut this. Yes, we're going to cut a little bit of that. And we're not going to touch this and this and that. And by the way, here, I'm going to spend more. And I'm going to spend more because this is an extraordinary opportunity for us to accelerate our embracing of technology and our integrating technology in our offering and in, in what we do. We had always known we were going to do it and we were supposed to do it. We just grew 25% over the last two years. You know, we're busy, right? So, you know, we've been doing some on the technology front, except we were super busy. Well, guess what? April, May, we're not super busy <laughs> from a program point of view. So we put in a massive investment, time and energy investment, and some financial investment to make sure that at the end of this, at the end of this, meaning like within four weeks, my faculty is already orders of magnitude better. So, so again, the third point is you've got to manage at the same time the defensive side and the offensive side. So we call it playing defense and playing offense. You know, so I have things where I'm playing defense. I reduce the salary, the salary mass, which of course is our number one cost. And we get financing, da, 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 that's playing defense. But then we're also playing offense on a number of elements. So I think that's the, that's the third thing. And the fourth thing is a more personal one, is you've got to manage yourself as a leader. And you've got to manage yourself as a leader because even more than usual, uh, you are mommy, daddy, uh, and everything. You know? And so the demands on me are just like huge. And, you know, you're supposed to be cheerful. You're supposed to, um, you know, you're supposed to be serious, but empathic. Uh, you're supposed to be very patient, you know, because you get some faculty that have preposterously entitled attitudes on stuff. And what you want to do is just go and tear their eyeballs out and then tear their kneecaps off and then go after their families. But you know that this is not a good time to do that, right? So you got to take like 17 deep breaths and go like, okay, let me reply with compassion. I mean, I had one of these like last week. You know, I, I wrote like four drafts of the email. You know, the first one was like, pow, the second one. And by the end, it was short and it was incredibly compassionate. And the guy replied and said, um, you know, very said, look, thank you very much. That helps me enormously. And by the way, thanks for taking the time to write. I know how busy you are. And I wrote to my faculty dean and I said, this job requires extraordinary amounts of patience, empathy, and compassion. On the positive side, it works. So you've really got to work on yourself to make sure that you remain in that space. Because it is actually quite difficult to remain in that space with you know, all the pressures on the leader, uh, including on the family side. You know? um, so I think that's my fourth one. Uh, that's my fourth point that, that as a leader, if you want to be of help to your community, you've really got to be able to uh, manage yourself in a way that maintains you in that uh, very productive zone. And that's not trivial. Well, it sounds like we're in a period uh, that really tests the leadership capacities of people. 
Yeah, I think it tests individuals and it tests teams. Again, I, I think on the teams, you know, clearly you see the fault lines. And, and, um, and again, some of your folks just thrive, they step up and, and others, the way I think about it, I don't know if it helps, but the way I think about it is, um, you remember Sumitra when we have just in time, you know, we said it lowers the river, it lowers the level of the river, right? And so you have rocks that were below the, 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 the river that you, you couldn't see them, right? The level, the river was at a meter high and you had a rock at 80 centimeters. And the more just in time you introduce, the more you lower the level of the river and suddenly new rocks appear. For me, that's exactly what the crisis did. What the crisis did is my, my team was working okay and you know, we, the river was at a meter and zack, from one day to the other, you go to 50 centimeters. Or another way of looking at it is the crisis is such that every morning you put on 20 kilos of extra weight on your shoulders. You know, you just go and pow, you put a sack. And, and some of us can walk around comfortably with an extra 20 kilos and others don't. So, so that for me, the crisis is a revelator individually, but also collectively. And this I've discussed with a number of CEOs, especially group CEOs, right? Because then they see their management teams. And one of them said to me, he said, absolutely, it's fascinating. I mean, you wanna, you wanna see the potential of people Right, you just you, you introduce this crisis and, and you see those who again are gonna embrace the challenge and thrive and those that will just wither away. So yeah, the crisis is, you also have got to remember one thing. You know, life for leaders is hard. Life at the top is particularly hard, but you gotta remember that point number one, that's just not true. Uh, if you look at every, uh, study of health within organizations, health is a lot better at the top than it is downstairs. So we've also got to remember this as leaders. You know, yeah, sure, it's tough. I work seven days a week, da, 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 the pressure. Yeah, look, you know, if your loved ones are okay, uh, nobody died last, you know, nobody died in your family, you're already okay. Today, I don't know about you, uh, now I think all of us, either know somebody who died or know somebody very close, who know somebody who died who was very close to somebody we know. So this is no longer, you know, 0.1% statistics. People die. Again, as a leader, you've got to remember, even when you have it hard, uh, you know, it could be dramatically worse. And, and I think one of the things that helps leaders in those circumstances is to maintain a gratitude practice. You know, uh, my life is hard. Yeah, sure. The life of CEOs is hard. Yeah, sure. Uh, before you go to bed, sit down for three minutes and thank life for all the things that went well today. Uh, all the manifestations of, of kindness that you receive from people. Um, I mean, <laughs> I've never had as many positive, you know, emails from members of my staff. And again, you know, my, my family is safe. So again, let's always remember that. You know, life is hard, yeah, sure. Um, but this one, people die. And, and you know, life or death is just a different level of, of intensity than business challenges. Wow. Well, thank you for 
sharing both your mind and your heart. So, so, Sumitra was right. This is one of the more interesting and profound opportunities that we've had. With thanks to IMD's Jean-Francois Manzoni and GBSN's CEO and Chairman Dan and Sumitra for facilitating the conversation. In the next instalment of the podcast, Dan sits down with new GBSN member and importantly first corporate member in our 17-year history, Simon Ray of Echobank Academy. So if you look at the demand of just-in-time knowledge, the wonderful network business schools and, and universities have, rigor, research, etc., and this incredible ability that my colleagues at uh, Ecobank Academy have in designing structured workflows uh, programs that not only can be deployed to address a need right now, but also they can be scaled in such a way that in 33 countries in Africa, in one go, we are able to have the same programs, the same capabilities, and of course, the same level of quality. That's Simon Ray, Group Head of Echobank Academy, Talent and Organizational Development. Be sure to check out our Talent for Africa virtual forum series. The forum focuses on the future that Africa wants and the power of its people to achieve it, highlighting the importance of leadership, management and entrepreneurship across sectors and across the continent, exploring the challenges of building education and development capacity and aligning it with the needs of a rapidly changing continent. Click through to gbsn.org slash events for more and be sure to sign up to our newsletter for more updates from the Global Business School Network. Thanks as always for your time. Look after yourself and those around you. Until next time, take care.